Welcome into the BearCast on Sikkim365.com. I'm your host, Grayson Grunhafer, and I am going to be going solo this week. Uh, Craig and I decided, due to the weather, um, me driving up there, just not going to work out this week. But next week, we will, of course, be back in studio uh, on YouTube and, of course, on Sikkim365 as well. But lots to talk about this week. Uh, we have a lot to dive into. Of course, I'm going to talk about a huge commitment in basketball couple big commitments in football as well, as well as talking a little bit of basketball, men's and women's side of things as we try to, you know, figure out, you know, what's going on with these two teams. Uh, the men's team had a very nice week. The women's team a really bad week. So kind of getting that back on track and resetting the table a little bit for both of those programs. Uh, and, and I think, you know, most weeks when we start the BearCast, we always start with football. But this week, I, I think we absolutely have to start with the basketball side of things and not necessarily uh, the results on the court, even though I'll get there uh, in a minute. But it's more so the huge commitment that Baylor got over the weekend on Sunday. Uh, VJ Edgecombe, uh, the five-star guard slash wing prospect uh, who committed to Baylor. And he chose Baylor over Duke and Kentucky. Uh, Kentucky had been ruled out kind of during the middle of the week and it became a, a Baylor versus Duke uh, type thing. And, you know, Baylor didn't win the game on the court this year, but they won the game off the court. That's for sure. In this recruiting battle, um, this is one of the biggest recruits Baylor's ever landed. Uh, he's number three behind Isaiah Austin and Quincy Miller as far as all time recruits. Um, I think you could argue that he is just as good as those guys. And, and I think, you know, as you kind of project forward, I, I do think that he's got far more NFL potential than or NBA potential than both of them. Uh, of course, Isaiah was, you know, he had to deal with a uh, a disease that kind of set him back. But as far as VJ goes, I think this guy is a really, really fascinating prospect and a guy who I think Baylor fans are going to be really, really excited about, you know, when you watch him play. Uh, but I think his story is almost more fascinating than, you know, just watching him play or just seeing him where he's at now. I mean, this guy was the 153rd ranked player in the entire nation in composite rankings, 153rd in the nation in November. And now he's the number five player in the 2024 class. It has been an epic rise, um, something that I don't think many people saw coming, um, but something that once the Baylor staff saw it, it really was pretty easy for them to say, okay, need to offer this guy, need to figure out what he's about, and then need to figure out how to land him. And obviously, you know, during the summer is where Baylor found him. He played at the Sport Trader Showdown in Las Vegas, and he showed up, averaged 23 points, six rebounds, three and a half assists, um, played extremely well. And that's where his offers really started to come in. He got a bunch of offers kind of in a row. Baylor was one of those. Um, and of course, Baylor ends up, you know, getting him on two official visits, just continuing to build that relationship. And what was so fascinating about this is that at the same time, they were still having to recruit Trey Johnson, who of course ended up coming to Texas. Um, but they were recruiting both of them for a long time. And and I think as things started to get closer to, you know, decision-making time, um, you kind of realize, you know, Trey made his choice. Baylor would have taken him for sure. Um he made his decision earlier than VJ, but I think when you look back on it and just the simple fact that Baylor was able to find a way to land VJ, I do think that you can definitely make the argument that it definitely paid off. Uh, I mean, we're going to see how these two guys' careers pan out. Trey is a very, very talented scorer, a very good prospect in his own right, um, but VJ 
is kind of one of those guys where you watch him play, you can tell, you know, not that the game is necessarily new to him, but there is a lot more just kind of rawness built into his game. And you can see it in a variety of ways. But the thing that he does have is just this elite athleticism. And when you have this kind of athletic ability, the kind that he does have, um, it really just increases your ceiling to a whole nother level. And, and I'm really excited to see how he kind of develops. I, I think there's a lot more of a ceiling with him than maybe there is with Trey, even though Trey is obviously a very, very talented scorer at this point in his career. You know, kind of looking through, you know, how people compare him, some, some of the guys that people have mentioned. Uh, you've seen some Anthony Edwards, who, of course, has – you know, really taking over uh, the league. He's taking the league by storm this year as he's helped Minnesota become, you know, very relevant this season. He's a very good player. That's one comparison. You've seen the Dwayne Wade comparison as well. Um, that's a very fascinating one. I think athletically you see it. I know there are things about Dwayne Wade's game that you're kind of going to have to sit back and see if VJ has it. You know, Dwayne Wade's motor, um, just ability to finish through contact, Um and just the way he moved, uh, just very, very different than guys. The way he, you know, manipulated across the lane and was able to find his own shot, create his own shot. That's going to be something that will come with time. Um, but I do think you see the athletic features there and the play hard potential. And when you're playing hard, you have this athleticism, you play good defense. That's how you get compared to some really, really good players in their own right, like a Dwayne Wader and Anthony Edwards. So Massive prospect. Obviously, winning a battle over Duke is huge as well. And now you look at Baylor's recruiting class, and they got the number five ranked class in the country, according to 247, and number three, according to on three uh, in the nation. You, know, you look at guys like Jason Alcimoda, uh, Rob Wright, and Noah Boyd, the seven footer, uh, add in VJ Edgecombe, and you got a really, really good group to look forward to going into next season. And, you know, we don't really talk about Jason Alcimoda or uh, and, and really mainly him. I, I think a lot of Baylor fans are really excited about Rob Wright and just kind of what he could bring to the table as this point guard of the future, a guy who could be a Baylor for maybe a couple years and hope that he really turns into, you know, a Chris Paul type playmaker um, for Baylor. But a lot of people don't really talk about Jason Asimoto, who, you know, pretty much a consensus top 30 guy. Some rankings have him as a top 20 guy. I mean, 6'8" can shoot the ball, very athletic. Um, he's going to surprise some people as well. And I, I think he definitely completes this class, right? When you have these three guys, um, you you have the versatility with Asimoto. You got, you know, the high-end uh, NBA potential as a one-and-done in BJ Edgecombe, uh, just this immense ceiling. And then you got Robert Wright, who you're hoping is, you know, maybe a guy who plays a couple years at Baylor. And you put that all together um, with a seven-footer like Noah Boyd, a uh, kind of, projection type guy it really completes this class in a very nice way and of course going into next year they'll also look to hit the transfer portal as they're likely to lose a few guys from this year's team like Jacoby Walter, Eves Missy, um, maybe even Jalen Bridges as well uh, so yeah still some holes there but of course when you look at the class as a whole it's just become consistent with Scott Drew and company with you know the Keontae George class um Two years, you know, a year ago, you got Jacoby Walters class this year. And then, of course, this class. I mean, it's been three straight really awesome classes with, you know, I think three guys who are all really, really highly drafted guys. I, I know Keontae ended up going later than many people thought. And I, I think he's currently showing in the NBA right now um, that he probably should have gone higher. Um, and then you look at, 
you know, Jacoby Walter definitely going to be a top 10 pick. And I think VJ kind of fits into that mold as well. Uh, Walter could sneak into the top five. I think VJ could as well. Uh, but at the end of the day, the recruiting, you know, is at this level that I, I really don't think we've seen before in this program. I know you can go look at 2010 to 2012 and point to that period. And that was a really good period as well. They were able to land a lot of high-end guys uh, during those few classes. But I think you're seeing this sustainability with a lot of the top guys in the entire country. They look at Baylor as a program that they want to play at. It's become consistent across a lot of the high-level players across college basketball or high school basketball. And I think for that reason, you're seeing a program that has this just massive sustainability factor. And I think that's a credit to Scott Drew, a credit to the staff. Um, BJ Edgecombe mentioned relationships, you know, as something that was huge to him. And a lot of people who followed his recruitment mentioned relationships. Uh, the Christian environment, another big part of it as well. And so, again, I, I think it just relates really well with recruits. And that's why you're seeing them, you know, kind of get to this point where they're just landing a top guy every single year. Now the question is, you know, trying to balance that, right? You got to balance the roster. And I know a lot of people have pointed to the fact that the team that won the national championship didn't have a bunch of one and done freshmen. And, and that's great. You know, it, it happened at the right time um, with the transfer portal and things like that. And I, I think in, when you kind of look at it, you would like it to be, you know, you have a five-star, maybe two five-stars, and then you have a ton of older veteran guys. And, you know, this year's team is kind of like that. Um, but I think, you know, you're hoping again for everything to mesh correctly, everything to come together and that allows you to make a deep run in March. And we'll see if this year's team can do it. Um, and next year's team, I think with this addition, there's definitely uh, a lot of optimism that I think people should have about this Baylor program going into next year. Okay. So that's the VJ Edgecombe story, obviously a huge one for the bears. Now let's move on to what they got going on this week. So this Baylor program right now, um, kind of at a at a point where I think a lot of people are a little nervous about what this team is going to be and you know how good are they really. But the simple fact of the matter is, is they're sitting there at three and zero in the Big Twelve. They got a win over Oklahoma State on the road, and then they beat BYU, a top twenty five team, and then survived against Cincinnati over the weekend. So overall, a two and zero week. They're three and zero in the Big Twelve. You can't ask for a better start. I know you'd want these results to maybe be a little bit more decisive, um, but you're 3-0, and all you got to do is just keep winning games, and that can allow you to win the Big 12 Conference. And they got a huge week, uh, an absolutely massive week coming up. Obviously, if they go 2-0 and this week, you're looking at a team that is uh, built, built for the long haul, in my opinion, because – they got a matchup on the road against Kansas State tonight. Uh, they're actually a one-and-a-half-point underdog against 12-4 and four Kansas State. And then on Saturday, big matchup in Austin against the Texas Longhorns, who are 12-4 and four as well. Uh, so, again, huge week coming up. Two road games. Any road game that you win in the Big 12 is massive. Uh, I've mentioned this ad nauseum. you got to take care of business at home. If you want to win the Big 12, if you want to be a serious contender, you pretty much always can only lose maybe once at at home because you know Kansas probably isn't going to lose very many times at home. So you got to be able to hold serve on your home court. All your road games are a cherry on top. Those are what really turn you from, oh, yeah, you can win the Big 12 to, oh, yeah, you can be a national title type contender. So this week should tell us a whole lot 
about this Baylor program. So Kansas State, really quick, they are number 57, according to Ken Palm, 104th on offense, 31st on defense. Um, the Big 12 is just a gauntlet when it comes to defensive teams. But Kansas State offensively, they've had their problems this year. And, you know, Kansas State sitting there at 12-4 and four, uh, is pretty good. You know, they, they should have beaten Texas Tech uh, over the weekend, really kind of let that one slip away. Uh, they beat UCF. They beat West Virginia, who are two of the uh, not worst teams. UCF's got a, a win over Kansas, obviously. But um, in general, I think West Virginia's probably going to end up being the worst team in the Big 12, even though I know they got a win this weekend. UCF is probably going to be a, kind of an up-and-down type team all year. And then the last Texas Tech, who is currently 3-0 in the Big 12. So, again, K-State's playing pretty well since Big 12 play started. Uh, but if you look back kind of at how their season has gone, they got blown out by USC. Um, that's a pretty, pretty tough loss. They beat Providence. That's going to end up being a, a much better win now as Providence is playing a little bit better, significantly better, actually. Uh, they beat Villanova. They beat LSU by 15 Lost to Nebraska by 16 points. Um, that's not great. Nebraska's fine, but not awesome. And now, of course, the Big 12 play has happened, and they're playing better. I, I think that, in general, you know, Baylor's playing better defensively since Big 12 play has started. Um, I think these teams have a lot of familiarity with each other, and I also think there's just a little bit more of a want to when you're in Big 12 play. So I'm I'm looking forward to seeing if Baylor can keep that intensity going into this matchup last year, they did not play well on the road against Kansas state. Um, that was one of the more disappointing efforts that I saw from Baylor last year. Now they're going to go on the road, play a really good team and it, it's going to be a grind. I think we all, we all know that that is absolutely going to be a very tough matchup for the bears. But I think in general, they are playing a team that is beatable. And while Kansas state can challenge you in a number of ways. And I do think they have some guys who can score the basketball, especially if Baylor does not play, defense the way that they have over the past you know few games here you know they could give up some big points and unfortunately if you give up 70 points to Kansas State you're probably going to be in a world of hurt because the number 31 defense is going to probably be able to give Baylor at least some problems uh, Baylor obviously is a very good offense they have the opportunity to explode on anyone in the country I think we've kind of seen that but you know, if you give up 70 to Kansas State tonight, you're probably not going to win this game. I still think that is a, a tough ask when you're going on the road if you give up those kind of numbers. So I think Baylor definitely wants to muck up this game a little bit, play it in the 60s, unless their offense goes off, then I guess you could play it at a higher clip. But in general, I think Baylor has a good opportunity tonight. It's definitely a uh, one of those matchups where it's strength versus strength, right? Offense versus defense going into this, and then a weakness versus weakness, offense versus defense for Kansas State. Very curious to see how this one plays out. I understand why they're an underdog going into this one, though, as this Baylor team has not played up to, I think, their potential yet. Still think they can get there, but they haven't played there yet. And then on Saturday, um, they roll in and they play against Texas in Austin. Um, Texas is 12-4 and four on the season. They're number 42, according to Ken Palm. 48th on offense, 49th on defense. This team is basically just right in the middle on kind of everything. They're a good basketball team, not a great basketball team, but they can do some things on both sides of the court, which is, I think, rather intriguing about them. Uh, they, of course, are coming off of what was a really bad loss for them, losing to West Virginia, 76-73. to 73. 
this was a game where I really felt like their defense let them down. I mean, Max Avesmith had 32 points in this game, Dylan Disu with 18. But you just show up and you just lay an egg defensively and give up 76 points to West Virginia. That was a, a pretty bad loss for them. And really, since Big 12 play started, I've not been impressed with Texas. They went into Cincinnati and beat Cincinnati. But if you wouldn't watch that game, I think there's a, a strong case to be made that Cincinnati let that one get away. Um, I, I, they won by one point. There were some traveling calls that weren't called. Um, Cincinnati gave them a huge fight. And then Texas, the first game of Big 12 play, lost by double digits to Texas Tech. So, again, I think this Texas team is okay. But I think right now they're extremely susceptible. They play UCF in Austin on Wednesday, uh, tomorrow. Very curious to see how that one plays out, to see if Texas can get back on track uh, against the UCF team that I, I think is much better at home than they are away at this point in the season. Curious to see how Texas does there. And then they match up, of course, with Baylor. But at this point, what I've seen from Texas is a Big 12 team that's probably going to hover around 500 and maybe even the lower side of 500 based on how they've played up to this point in conference play. Baylor has another opportunity to take advantage against a team that currently maybe hasn't found themselves yet at this point in the season. So that's it for the basketball side of things for the men's side. Now moving over to the women's side, this was really a, a rough week uh, for the women's basketball program. And one that I, you know, I really didn't see coming and something that's really disappointing. And I, I think a big part of it is just the simple fact that when you, when you look at a week ago, you know, I'm talking about this Baylor women's team as a team that can potentially make a deep run in the tournament and, and do all these things. They're undefeated. They have a great chance to win the big 12 and then they show up or should I say they don't show up against Kansas. They give up 87 points on the road against Kansas Jayhawks. They lose 87 to 66, just a blowout. I mean, not even competitive in this game. Again, completely didn't show up uh, against a Kansas team that, you know, is fine. I guess they're two and three in the big 12, nine and seven on the year. They've won two in a row now, but I just, again, that was a terrible loss to lose the way they did. If you go in there and you barely lose to Kansas, okay, you got upset, no problem. I understand it happens at, at times. But to lose by 21 points, that tells you that there are still some flaws for this women's basketball team. Then it gets worse. You turn right around on Saturday and lose to Iowa State, who is now 5-0 and in the Big 12, 12-4 on the season, and Iowa State's 9-1 and at home. I would have been more fine losing a game like this. They didn't lose big. It was a close game. I understand all that. But to lose it right after getting blown out to Kansas, again, signifies there's still a lot of work to do for this women's basketball program. The good news is they get UCF on Saturday, so they get a nice long break to get ready for a UCF team that's going to come in to the Foster Pavilion at 9-6 and six and on a five-game losing streak in the Big 12. They're 0-5. This needs to be a blowout. This needs to be a get-right type game for this women's basketball team. Figure some things out this week. Go in, take care of UCF, because on Monday, they get the biggest challenge probably of their season up to this point, where they take on 17-1 and Kansas State, the team that is currently at the top of the Big 12 standings with Iowa State. Uh, a huge opportunity. You go in, you win these two games in a row, and you are right back in the Big 12 uh, title conversation. You know, you get Kansas State at home. 
So you have to win. If you actually want to win the Big 12, you win these two, and you are right back in it, Nikki Collins' squad. But they got to get better. I did not like what I saw this week, and definitely sets back my expectations. You know, it doesn't completely get rid of the start that they've had because, obviously, they had a great start to the year. But it definitely does kind of point out some of the flaws in their game and some things that they obviously need to work on, such as rebounding, guarding the post, you know, just being bigger, more physical. And a lot of that, you know, you can't really correct at this point in the year because some of it is personnel. But in general, they got to figure out a way to scheme around that and see if they can get that done this week against UCF. And then, of course, on Monday against Kansas State. So, again, that's it for the basketball side of things. Let's move over to football. Um, I'm going to start with the two commits. I think that's obviously where we should start with this. And the first one is Ole Miss tight end Michael Trigg. Uh, He committed uh, last week, and and this was a huge one. And and one that we'd been waiting on for a while. Uh, He visited Baylor and then, of course, just kind of took the week uh, to make his decision. We saw early in the week decisions were made um, by multiple prospects, but Trigg decided to take his time. And he waited and waited and waited before finally announcing his decision. This is a huge one. You know, 6'4", 245-pound prospect. Um, he was the only tight end that the Baylor staff brought in. They they saw him. They decided he was the guy that they wanted. They spent all their time. He made They made him the priority for this recruiting class at the tight end position in the transfer portal. And this is a guy where you look at him and you go, okay, this is all about the ceiling. That's what this is with Michael Trigg. You go look at his career and there's not a ton that stands out to you. He's got 28 receptions for 330 yards and five touchdowns in 15 career games. That's not great. You know, it's fine. He's been productive at times, but it's been very hit or miss. And this year, of course, he only plays in three games, which actually does allow him to maintain a redshirt year. He ends up redshirting, which means he's got two seasons of eligibility remaining at Baylor. But at least the question, why do you leave Ole Miss after three games, right? So that's factored into this whole equation. Um, The fact that he hasn't been very productive at Ole Miss and USC has had some flashes here and there, but nothing big. Then you look at his two spring games at Ole Miss, which add even more intrigue to the entire situation. In 2023, he had 138 yards and a touchdown. And in 2022, he had 89 yards and three touchdowns. So you look at those spring games and you're sitting there going, man, this guy's going to be a breakout player for Ole Miss. And that doesn't all come together. You add that with the fact that he was a four-star prospect, top 150 player in the entire nation for the 2021 class adds even more intrigue, right? He had 49 offers, Alabama, Florida, Georgia, LSU, Notre Dame, Ohio State, Oregon, Penn State. I mean, some of the best programs in the country when it comes to developing tight ends wanted to offer this guy out of high school. He ends up going to USC, transfers to Ole Miss, and things just haven't all come together. But I think what you could be getting here is a guy who is really searching for a place where he can thrive and really get his career back on track. I think for that reason, you're getting a highly motivated individual. That's what you're hoping you're getting, right? And and I do think that you have to weigh in the fact that Baylor brought him in on a visit, got to talk to him, got to figure out, okay, you know, what do you want out of this experience? You know, going into the transfer portal, what's this next step for you? 
And I think when you kind of put that all together, again, this is what you're looking for. A guy who is going in to his fourth year and is just ready to turn into this NFL type prospect. And, and I do think that they are, that is a possibility for Michael Trigg. I think he has that ability, that kind of upside. You turn on the tape, you see him make these just fantastic plays. Now it's just about doing it game in and game out. If he can do it game in and game out, again, I think this guy is an NFL prospect. On the Baylor side of things, they lost Drake Dabney to the transfer portal. He ends up at TCU. And then Jake Roberts entered the transfer portal and ends up at Oklahoma. And so it left this opening for Baylor to say, to sit back and go, okay, can we find someone who really fits this air raid spread scheme and a guy who can come in and just be a true difference maker? Because you got Matthew Klopfenstein, you got Kelsey Johnson, you got Hawkins Polly, you got guys who definitely fit in roles, right? And, and I do think for this offense, Matthew Klopfenstein is probably the best fit when it comes to long-term potential. But I do think there is a spot for Kelsey Johnson to come in and work his way in as receiving um, tight end and as a guy who can fill in, of course, as an H-back fullback type as well. Hawkins probably a very good inline blocker if Jake Spavital wants to use that at all um, and use him in the red zone as well. But I think they wanted someone a little bit older, a little bit more seasoned, you know, more polished, more experienced than Klopfenstein as just a redshirt freshman. And I think that's where they looked. They found a guy who was a clear upgrade, a guy who comes in with all this athletic potential. And he looks like a guy who literally can slide in as being an outside receiver, a slot receiver. You can move him around in different ways and he can win one-on-one -on -one battles. And when you have a guy like that, it truly is a weapon as a tight end. And so you're not going to see him line up much as an inline blocker or being asked to do a ton of that. He will be asked to do it, but not a ton of it you're going to see him be used like a wide receiver, like a 6'4", 245-pound wide receiver who is going to demand targets, going to be an issue for teams in the red zone and across the middle of the field and lined up on the outside. Again, huge pickup. And while Baylor has landed two slot wide receivers and everyone's asking, well, why are they landing slot receivers? Well, they need that in this class, but they also need big red zone threats who are also just athletic freaks. And that's exactly what Michael Trigg is. He provides a lot of upside to this offense and is a absolutely massive pickup for this Baylor team. And even though I didn't necessarily sit there and say they absolutely had to land a tight end, I do think when you see Michael Trigg, you see a best player available type. And he happens to play tight end. You put that all together, massive pickup, and a guy who I think has a ton of potential in this offense. And if you're Daquan, if you're Daquan Finn, you're sitting there and going, okay, so Michael Trigg went out, added Ashton Hawkins. You got Keetron Jackson. You got Hal Presley. I'm about to talk about another receiver. Things are really coming together for this Baylor offense. Um, added up front on the offensive line with Kurt Daniker, Omar Egbedian. I just, I mean, you sit there and go, wow, there's a lot of weapons for Finn to work with now. And Baylor's clearly putting in an effort to develop and just continue to find guys in the portal who are going to develop this offense in a positive way under Jake Spavitol. So let's talk about the other addition on the offensive side, the other guy that they added this week, uh, Nevada wide receiver Jamal Bell. Another big pickup in my eyes for this Baylor program for different reasons uh, than Michael Trigg. This one in my eyes has everything to do with fit, fit in the offense specifically, experience in the offense, special teams, which is huge, 
leadership as far as being a veteran type. Um, and you put those three things together and you find a guy who kind of fits in really well with what Baylor's trying to do. And you kind of look at, look back and you go through his numbers and you're not going to be wowed. You're just not, you know, I, I mean, he totaled uh, 376 yards from scrimmage on 64 total touches in 2023 um, had 51 targets, but the quarterback play at Nevada was absolutely dreadful. Uh, I mean, there's no other way to put it. it. It's been absolutely terrible there the last two years for him. And he still managed to produce a little bit, you know, in that offense. And he's done that a couple years in a row. He's amassed a total of 800 career yards, got four touchdowns, he's got 689 yards receiving, 112 yards rushing. Uh, and a lot of those rushing yards are actually him being lined up in the backfield, which I do feel like is kind of intriguing uh, when you talk about, you know, being able to move him around. If you're in a five wide receiver set, move him into the backfield and run the ball and feel confident that he knows what he's doing as a running back as well. I think that's going to be very fun to watch gives you an opportunity to kind of allow Jordan neighbors to learn even more, because I do think neighbors is probably going to take over this role in the future. Uh, if he doesn't take it over this year, you know, we'll see, obviously he's being used as a running back at the end of last year. We'll see if Spavital is going to move him back to receiver, but I think how they use bell is probably how they're going to use Jordan neighbors in the future, just with maybe a little bit more upside. So what else does bell bring to the table? Well, one year of eligibility, which is key. Uh, in the NIL era, I know a lot of people want to talk about just adding as much talent as possible. That's great, but you still have to figure out roster construction, still have to figure out how much NIL do you want to spend, you know, here or there or for future years. And so getting a guy with one year, you know exactly what the NIL commitment is, and you know that he's just coming in for this season. He's going to come in and help stabilize the offense for this year, allow you to develop younger guys, and then he's going to move on his way. I think it's the perfect kind of guy to come in and just provide some stabilization to the slot receiver spot, just like they're doing with Texas State wide receiver Ashton Hawkins as well. He's played in a spread scheme, um, so he knows it. He knows how he's going to be utilized in it. Oh, and then he's also the all-time lean kick return guy in Nevada history. So there's going to be a lot of confidence in putting him back there and allowing him to be an impact guy on special teams as well. And again, I, I think that's a huge area that Baylor needs to get better at. We saw at the end of last year with, you know, Richard Reese having the big moment against West Virginia. You saw Josh Cameron, you know, have a couple big punt returns. But I think you're getting a guy who's really going to be a special type. Uh, just he's going to have this specialty, right, that I don't think anyone else on the roster really has at this point. And I think that could be big uh, for Baylor to try to win on the margins in special teams. Now, as far as, you know, what does he do well? Well, he ran a 4-4-3 40-yard dash at the opening. Uh, he won the fast man challenge at that. He also has a 4-2 shuttle and a 35-inch vertical. This guy's explosive. You get the ball in his hands, and he can absolutely run by people. He can make people miss in the open field. Um, he's just a guy you're going to want to get the ball to and allow him to go make a play. And I think Baylor needs guys like that. They don't have a lot of guys like that especially not in the slot, which I'm going to get to here in a second. But in general, he's got the burners, the ability to take the top off the defense, the ability to catch the ball and just be a factor after the catch. And again, that fits the scheme really well with what Jake Spavital is looking for. Now, as far as when I'm talking about the slot wide receiver position, why does that matter? Well, they went out, got Ashton Hawkins. Now they got Jamal Bell. And you look at what Baylor has 
on the roster. They got Jordan Neighbors, who's a slot receiver or a running back. He's been moved around. He's still we'll see type. Monterey Baldwin, who I think can play the slot and did for Baylor last year, but I actually think you know he might fit better on the outside a little bit more. Uh, he's not as sure-handed um, as some of these other guys. So you know we'll see, but he only has one year left. So again, he's going to be gone soon. Ashton Hawkins, one year left. Jamal Bell, one year left. But you had to bring in guys like this because if you look at the roster, like I said, Jordan Neighbors, running back wide receiver. Cameron Bonner, who we haven't seen much of. He's a slot, but I don't know that he fits as a slot in this offense either because you got to have you got to be able to really catch the football uh, in this offense. I don't know if he's that type of guy. Then you look at Jaden Porter, who's the next guy, who's a true freshman. So counting on a true freshman, not ideal. Outside of that, you got Armani Winfield, Micah Gifford, Javon Gibson. I mean, those are outside receivers. Those aren't slot guys. And then you got Josh Cameron, who I do think profiles okay as a slot guy, but he's not your typical slot. He looks more like a tight end type guy as far as how they could utilize him. Of course, you could put him on the outside at times as well, but I do think he'll function better in the slot in this offense. So again, just not a lot of options there. Not a lot of guys who fit your traditional slot wide receiver in an air raid offense. And because of that, they really had to focus on that. And I think Hawkins and Bell really alleviate a lot of those concerns. I still personally think Baylor will take another wide receiver. Um, they're going to, I think they're going to want a high-end one. They did that with LeJante Wester. They lost that battle to Colorado. But I think in general, they want to add one more alpha type guy, a guy who they can really bring in and trust to be very, very good in this offense. Um, I would think more of a high-level guy. That's where I'm at currently as far as the wide receiver position goes. Whether he's outside or inside receiver, I don't think necessarily matters. What I do think matters is that he would function as, you know, that third, maybe fourth go-to guy to allow this offense to really thrive in the passing game. I, I think that's the most important part. As far as the other parts of the transfer portal uh, to note, uh, I still think Baylor's going to be looking at the offensive line. That, that's an area that they absolutely still want to address. They brought in Jacoby Jackson on a visit, um, did not land him. He chose Mississippi State. So I still think they're looking for a right tackle and maybe or maybe even a center. We'll see. I think they're looking for kind of the best available type so that they can bring in another guy to shore up another part of their offensive line. I, I think that's their main challenge and that's their main, I think, line of thinking as they move forward with trying to address the offensive line position through the transfer portal. And then the other position is the Jack linebacker spot. They got to address that. They've been looking for guys. They've been recruiting guys, whether it's Cassius Howell or Ty French. Um, they didn't land either of them. So they got to find a way to correct that uh, this time around. We'll see if they're able to, but those two positions, I'm really, really, or those three positions, wide receiver, offensive line, and Jack linebacker. Those three positions I'm looking for them to address <clears throat> as we move forward through the transfer portal cycle. Um, they still have some other areas as far as best player available types that I would personally like them to address when you look at potentially adding another defensive lineman or maybe adding another linebacker uh, for depth, um, maybe even a safety. I, I think there's still some areas that I would personally go add some prospects, but where the, th the way things are looking right now, those three positions, it just seems like they absolutely want to add a body at. And so we'll see if they're able to do it. They need to go out and add some starter level guys at both the, at all three of those positions. 
and still a lot of question marks in the air as they didn't bring in anyone to visit this weekend outside Jamal Bell. So they're going to be looking forward to the next couple weekends as they try to figure out who their priority targets are. We're not quite there yet, you know, with knowing who exactly they're targeting. Have some ideas, but nothing completely locked in at this moment as far as, oh, yeah, this guy's visiting. This guy's had a ton of contact with Baylor. Anything like that, not there yet. We'll see what happens hanging into the weekend. Uh, but those three positions are definitely the three that I would keep a close eye on. I do want to mention we're not going to dive into Junior Day too much this week. But if you are not a premium subscriber, you absolutely should be. Uh, Baylor's got a really, really good Junior Day set for January 28th. I already have over 20 guys on the list, quite a few four-star guys, quite a few guys with long offer lists. Um, so great opportunity for Baylor to make up some ground in the 2025 class. I know there's been a lot of talk you know, about this class being awesome. I've mentioned that. I think they could take you know 18 to 20, maybe even 21 guys in this class. And I think it's got an opportunity to be you know the best class Dave Rand has ever brought in uh, during his time at Baylor. I think there's that kind of upside. Now, that the only way for that to happen is having a good season and riding that momentum. But right now, they're off to a great start, especially for a team that just came off of a really, really bad season. For them to be in on as many guys as they are in on speaks volumes about the relationships the staff has built and their ability to recruit high-level prospects. Now, it means nothing if you don't get guys to commit and sign, but right now, they're off to a great start. And I think many people would be surprised at the kind of talent that they've been able to bring in. All right, let's move on to the mailbag for this week. First question, Scotty B. the Baylor King. Do you think college football seasons should start a week or two earlier to get the national title game the same day once the playoff expands to 12 teams? To me, there needs to be someone to reevaluate college football from a place of no bias, like Mac Rhodes said in the interview studio or studio interview a few weeks ago. I think shortening the season um, could be an option or starting it earlier. I, I think those are definitely two options that I would consider. I think you could probably get rid of a game uh, a game for each each program. Uh, I don't think there needs to be as many non-conference games. I also think, you know, if you're having a 12-team playoff, you're going to see some natural non-conference games at the end of the year, plus bowl games, which gives you an opportunity to play against teams from around the country. So I know people love those non-conference games, and I like them too, but the 12-team playoff matters far more to me than playing those non-conference games. So I definitely think either moving it up a week or eliminating a game or two I don't think is the worst idea. Mikey, hope y'all are staying warm. Trying to, trying to this week. I know we weren't able to do the in-studio podcast, but next week we will be able to. But yeah, trying to stay warm here in Austin. Okay, are we sure Sora Robertson will stay? Thought he came to Baylor to learn a pro-style offense. If he stays, where are the odds he starts over Daquan Fenn? Yeah, so I think it's a tricky situation for Sora Robertson. Um, at the moment. But I actually think if you really look into it and really kind of take your time evaluating it, you can see a light at the end of the tunnel for Sawyer. Yes, he did come to Baylor to learn a pro-style offense. That was part of it. But I also think that he came to Baylor because he wanted to be a Baylor and, and really liked what Baylor was all about, liked the culture. And you also have to remember, the not necessarily the plan, but there was a situation where he was going to sit behind Blake Shapin again this year. So he's kind of sitting in the same spot, right? 
I think Daquan Finn's going to start. I put the odds at, you know, 5% that Sora Robertson starts over Daquan Finn. I just don't see that happening. I, I really don't. I, you could put even lower than 5% if you want to. Um, but that's kind of where I'm at. Finn is a, a special guy who you brought in to do special things at Baylor for this season. And he fits exactly what Spavital wants in this offense. So it makes sense that he's going to be the starting quarterback. But Sawyer is, again, just waiting one year, and then he's going to be the guy. He will be the guy next year. I saw enough from him this past season for me to sit there and go, yes, this guy in his final year could show up and have an absolutely massive season in Jake Spavital's offense. I can see that from him, and I think he's going to learn a ton from Jaquan Finn. I think he's going to learn a ton from Jake Spavital. And I think this offense is going to be far more explosive than the last one, which should be very intriguing to Sawyer. Yes, you could sit there and say, well, what if he leaves now? Maybe he could go start somewhere this year. Very possible. Very true. You know, maybe that happens. I think it's a maybe that that could happen. But I think in the long run, if he's going to look at one year, which is what he kind of was looking at when he got to Baylor, I know he would have liked to have been the starter last year and this year. Of course, it didn't work out that way. But I think in general, he's still going to get his one year to, to really ball out. And, and I think he can do that at Baylor. And I think Baylor's going to give him the opportunity to do that as well uh, during the 2025 season. Uh, are there any chances of snagging any of the recently released NFL coaches to help us even only in an in advisory role? Possible. Um, I don't really know any specifics on that, but I do think that it's a possible situation that Baylor could bring in somebody like that in an advisory role. I know Cold has mentioned Baylor potentially looking around for guys to come in and play that kind of role for Baylor. I just don't know if it'll be an NFL guy. So I think it's still wait and see unclear on that, but yeah, it, it's possible. Um, thank, thanks for you. Thanks for your show as always really appreciate the updates to get through the off season. Well, thank you, Mikey for the question. Next up useless Kim degree. Hey, guys, I had an interesting discussion regarding bowl games this weekend. If you were a college football czar for a day, how would you fix the awful trend of meaningless bowl games and high-profile opt-outs? Are we too far gone to fix this issue? I just don't understand how you can view a bowl game as meaningless. Well, I, I you know, I, I kind of in, in the camp of I, I disagree with that, you know, as far as that last sentence. Um you know, bowl games that don't have you – know, there are a lot of bowl games that just simply don't matter. And I think a lot of people would just say get rid of bowl games. I like bowl games. I think they're fun. I also don't think you should be putting a ton of stock into bowl games either. You know, I think sometimes – you know, if you look at it, it's definitely situation by situation. But I think for the most part, the team that cares more about the bowl game wins the bowl game. When you're not talking about, you know, the New Year's Six or the college football playoff games – you know, it's the team that cares more that usually wins that game. It doesn't necessarily mean the better team. And I know some people disagree with that, but I think it bears out pretty true when you go back and look, you know, through the history of these bowl games. And I think guys opt out because sometimes these games simply don't matter. And and they don't, especially when you're a high-profile prospect who's just saying, hey, I made it through the season healthy why would I go get hurt and risk my NFL draft future? I, I just don't, I don't see the point in doing that. I completely understand the opt-outs. I don't think there's a way that you fix it. I really don't. And I don't think there's a way that the NCAA should fix it. You're moving to a 12-team playoff. You're going to have 12 
you know, 12 teams that are absolutely going to care because they're trying to win a national championship. And then all the other bowl games, if guys sit out, that's fine. A young guy gets an opportunity to show what he could do going into the next year or so on and so on. You get to see kind of glimpses of the future. Um, I don't think it's a huge issue. I, I really don't. I think bowl games are what they are. They're exhibition games, simply put. They're, they're just games that are fun for the fan base. They get the fan base together. They're exciting. They're fun to watch. But at the end of the day, they don't really mean that much in my eyes, unless they're, of course, the New Year's Six or a college football playoff game. Of course. Thanks for the question. Useless. Kim Degree. Overrated. Would it surprise you if there is mutual interest between Texas A&M and Mac Rhodes? Um, A&M, of course, lost their athletic director, Ross Bjork, to Ohio State. Um, I have not heard Mac Rhodes' name mentioned for the A&M job, but it wouldn't surprise me if A&M came calling. I mean, I think Mac Rhodes is a good athletic director. I don't think the Baylor fan base has been very fair uh, in judging him uh, recently. I think, you know, this bad season really put a cloud over him and, you know, some other decisions as well. Um, But I think Mac is a very good athletic director and one that I don't think Baylor would like to see go. Um, That's kind of where I'm at with it. But again, yeah, wouldn't surprise me if A&M has some interest there. Thanks for the question. Overrated. Next up, Master Pierce, MPH. How can Nikki Collin best solve the missing post piece in the middle of conference play? It's a glaring issue as we were exposed by Kansas and Iowa State. Yeah, again, I think she's going to have to get creative. And this is the perfect week for it, right? Because you sit back, you get the whole week to prepare for UCF and Kansas State, the whole week to figure out, you know, where can we get better? How do we solve this? And yes, it's a problem because the personnel might not add up to being able to stop, you know, low post um, scores or being able to deal with that you know, very effectively in a one-on-one manner. But if you're having to bring help, you're having to work on rotations, you might change your defense in a certain way to, hey, you know what? We're going to give up more jump shots to make sure that we're not allowing, you know, looks at the rim. Make sure we're not allowing offensive rebounds. Make sure we're not giving up easy one-on-one opportunities in the post. I think that's what they're going to have to do this week um, and figure it out because it's clearly a glaring weakness and something they're going to have to address. Uh, second question, does it feel to you like Scott Drew team gets tripped up when teams want to run downhill fast and attempt to get fast break points? We got torched a few times versus BYU and Cincinnati, uh, which is concerning as we still play uh, the best fast break teams like TCU and Kansas. Um, yeah, I mean, I can see that. I can see your reason for concern. I can see you know, how giving up layups in transition has happened to this Baylor team. Uh, I would also say, you know, as far as this team this year, it's not the most athletic team uh, guard-wise that I've seen um, from Baylor. And so I think for that reason, you know, they're maybe a little bit slower getting back, which they're going to have to address and correct. I don't necessarily think that the fast breaks are killing this team, though. I I think it's definitely more so the half-court offense or defense. Um, They just – they're not great in that regard. And then the other problem is – is you know, Eves Missy, he's great. I really like what he brings to the table. He's been a little inconsistent at times, but when he's not playing well, I don't trust what they have uh, down low. Josh O's had some ups and downs. I just don't know that I trust him in the most crucial moments. We saw in the Cincinnati game, he took a uh, a very bad shot uh, late in that game. I, I just, you know, the more that I watch him, I just, I don't think that he's ready to close out games. So you really need Eves to be, more consistent 
And as a freshman, it's really hard to expect that game in and game out. But again, my concerns are more the half-court defense, more so than just fast-break offense. I will say, though, in that BYU game, I felt like the bigger thing was the fast breaks leading to open three-point attempts uh, as Baylor just not doing a good job communicating. Uh, But again, that communication on defense has been a problem all year, as has their ability in one-on-one defense, as has their ability in just simple half-court defense uh, in general. I think it's gotten a little bit better, uh, but there's still ways to go there for this team to really reach their potential as a team overall. It has to start on the defensive side. Final question of the week, Bears 2-2-4. In the event of Baylor football turning it around, how likely is it that Jake Spavital is around for the long game? Is he looking for another chance at a head coaching position or trying to get to a bigger program? He seems like an offense coordinator who's trying to get another tick on his resume to get something. But ultimately, I know nothing about the guy's personality or goals. Thanks and sick him. Well, I'll tell you this much. If Jake Spavital has a head coaching job at the end of this season, if he gets hired to go be the head coach somewhere, then that means Baylor probably won eight or nine games this year. I firmly believe that because if he's getting a head coaching job, then I firmly believe that that means Baylor probably had a top 25 offense this season because people just saw what happened when he was at Texas State and it didn't work out. So he's going to have to show once again, you know, he showed it at Cal the turnaround there. But he's going to have to show once again he can coach a truly dynamic and elite offense. I don't think you get there by just being a, a, you know, top 50 offense. I think you get there by being a top 25, top 20, really, really exceptional offense. Then I think you could get there. And and to be honest, if he left for a head coaching job after putting together that kind of performance, that means the Baylor program is in a much better spot when he left than when it started. And at the end of the day, that's what you're looking for with the hire of Jake Spavital. I do think eventually he'll want to be a head coach. But I also think in the long run, I, I think that he's probably going to be looking for the right job now. The Texas State job was not the right one for him. So I think he's probably going to be a little bit patient. And I do think that that means he could be a Baylor for a couple years. And I think long game, he's probably going to want to be a head coach, which of course he does. You know, he's still a young guy, still has an opportunity to learn and grow and become a better coach than what he was at Texas State. And I do think eventually he's going to be good enough to get that opportunity once again. But if you're going to ask me, would it be after one year, Well, if it's after one year, then Baylor was absolutely dynamic offensively. And that means this fall is going to be a lot of fun. And once again, it means the Baylor program is in a better spot uh, from the time that Jake Spavital got to Waco, which, again, that's what you're looking for uh, in the long run. Uh, But thanks for that question, Bears 224. So that's it for this week, guys. Thank you all so much for listening. Uh, It's been a lot of fun. Uh, We'll be back next week with Craig uh, in studio. And we'll talk a lot more about kind of what's going on with Baylor in the transfer portal, Baylor basketball, Baylor recruiting in general uh, then. But be sure to check out Sikkim365.com. If you're not a premium subscriber, please go there and become a premium subscriber. We have so much content on recruiting, on the transfer portal, on basketball, on everything. We have you covered for Baylor sports. Uh, But again, this has been Grayson Greenhafer. Thanks for listening.